0: Good morning, I'm James Holman from The Washington Post and this is The Daily 202 for Wednesday, January 20th. In today's news, uncertainty reigns in the Senate as Mitch McConnell says President Trump provoked the mob. A dozen members of the National Guard are removed from inauguration duty. And President-elect Joe Biden honors those who have died from COVID during his first event in the Capitol. But first, the big idea. On his final night in office, at midnight, President Trump granted clemency to 143 people, including former White House chief strategist Steve Bannon. But he did not preemptively pardon himself or his family. Trump also pardoned two former Republican members of Congress, Rick Renzi of Arizona and Randy Duke Cunningham of California. Both had completed prison terms that stemmed from their corruption convictions. A third, Robin Hayes of North Carolina, was also pardoned after finishing a probation sentence for making a false statement during a federal investigation. Bannon was charged last year with defrauding donors to a charity that was established to privately fund the building of a wall on the southern border. Bannon insisted he wasn't getting paid, but it turned out he and his associates allegedly pocketed $25 bucks. Now, Cunningham was one of the most brazenly corrupt lawmakers in modern U.S. history. He literally made a bribe menu for a defense contractor on congressional stationery that said to get a $16 million defense contract, you had to buy him a $140,000 luxury yacht, and then you had to pay him $50,000 in cash for every million dollars above that. As a member of Congress, defense contractors provided Cunningham with prostitutes. Two of them testified at his trial. Cunningham even lived on a yacht named after him. It was called The Dukester. It was docked right by the Capitol, and it was provided to him by a defense company president. Trump also granted a pardon to Republican mega donor Elliot Broidy, who pleaded guilty in October to acting as an unregistered foreign agent and lobbying the Trump administration on behalf of Chinese government and Malaysian interests. A Los Angeles-based investor, Brody helped raise millions for Trump in his campaign before serving as the Republican National Committee's deputy finance chairman. He was a regular fixture at the Trump Hotel. While Trump in recent weeks had been strongly considering extending preemptive pardons to his adult children and to himself in the wake of the attack on the Capitol, White House counsel Pat Cipollone and other advisors persuaded him that doing so would amount to an unnecessary admission of guilt, given that no one has been charged with any crime or is known to be under federal investigation. Trump's lawyers told him he could not pardon people without naming the potential crimes for which they were being pardoned. Trump ultimately decided against a series of other controversial pardons that he had also been considering, including for WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange, ex-NSA contractor Ed Snowden, and the president's own personal attorney, Rudy Giuliani, who has again not been charged with a crime, but whose consulting business has come under scrutiny as part of a sprawling investigation by federal prosecutors in Manhattan. Others receiving full pardons from the lame duck president include the rapper Lil Wayne, who pleaded guilty in December to carrying a loaded gold-plated 45 caliber Glock handgun on his private jet from California to Florida. He was barred from owning the gun due to a previous felony conviction. Trump also commuted the sentence of Salomon Melgan, a West Palm Beach eye doctor who was sentenced to 17 years in 2018 for stealing $73 million from Medicare. Another Trump commutation went to Sholom Weiss, who was serving an 835-year prison sentence stemming from his conviction in Florida for racketeering, wire fraud, and money fraud related to his role in the collapse of the National Heritage Life Insurance Company. Trump pardoned Ken Curson, a political consultant who was editor-in-chief of the New York Observer when it was owned by Jared Kushner, the president's son-in-law. Curson was charged in October with cyber-stalking related to his divorce, and he hadn't even gone to trial yet. The president also issued a full pardon to Paul Erickson, the Republican political operative who was sentenced to serve seven years in prison for wire fraud and money laundering after pleading guilty to a scheme to defraud investors in an oil development company. You may remember Erickson because he was romantically linked to Russian agent Maria Butina, who pleaded guilty to conspiring to infiltrate conservative groups. Trump has repeatedly used his pardon power to reward loyalists, rather than reserving acts of clemency for ordinary folks wronged by the justice system or who have demonstrated that they've been rehabilitated. Trump's first pardon back in 2017 went to former Sheriff Joe Arpaio of Maricopa County in Arizona, who had been convicted of criminal contempt of court for racial profiling and violation of a court order. Most of Trump's pardons have come since he lost the election in November including people who have been convicted of crimes as part of the investigation into Russian interference in the 2016 election. He pardoned his former campaign chairman, Paul Manafort, his longtime confidant, Roger Stone, and his one-time national security advisor, Michael Flynn. Trump also pardoned Charles Kushner, the father of his son-in-law, Jared, and three other Republican former members of Congress who were all accused of serious white-collar crimes. He pardoned ex-service members and military contractors convicted of war crimes overseas, including four contractors who were involved with the killing of 14 unarmed civilians in Iraq. It's not just the pardons, though. At 1.08 a.m., Trump rescinded an executive order that limited federal administration officials from lobbying the government or working for foreign countries after they leave their posts. This undoes one of the very few measures he had instituted to fulfill his 2016 campaign promise to drain the swamp. Trump signed the now-reversed executive order with much fanfare in the Oval Office after he took office. The order required executive branch appointees to sign a pledge that they would never work as registered foreign lobbyists, and it banned them from lobbying the federal agencies where they worked for five years after lobbying the government. This means that anyone who worked from Trump can now go do that. Trump didn't just fail to fulfill the pledges he made to change the culture of Washington. He supercharged the influence of moneyed interests. He gave wealthy donors ample access to him and his top aides, holding pricey fundraisers while supporters personally pitched him on their ideas. He forced the government to spend millions at his private hotels as he and his family traveled. And he sidestepped longstanding rules designed to prevent nepotism, allowing his son-in-law and daughter to serve in top government jobs. And that's the big idea. Here are three other headlines that should be on your radar. Number one. Outgoing Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell made his most definitive break yet with Trump yesterday, while the leader of the incoming Democratic majority laid out an ambitious agenda for the opening weeks of the Biden administration. McConnell, for the first time, directly blamed Trump for what happened on January 6th. He said in his final floor speech after six years as Majority Leader, the mob was fed lies. They were provoked by the president and other powerful people. Most of McConnell's fellow Senate Republicans show little sign of following suit. Many still must contend with a GOP base that's supportive of Trump, and they could pay a price for denouncing him too forcefully. This suggests that the Republican Party could face a years-long struggle between those embracing Trump and those distancing themselves. Chuck Schumer said he wants to pass as much legislation as possible in the next few weeks, and he wants to confirm Biden's cabinet nominees, approve trillions in additional pandemic aid, and bar Trump from holding office again despite an uncertain roadmap in the 50-50 Senate, which is struggling even to adopt its basic rules. Schumer is set to move from minority leader to majority leader around 3 p.m. when Vice President Kamala Harris will swear in Georgia's two new senators and tip the chamber toward Democrats with her tie-breaking vote. Number two, a dozen members of the National Guard have been removed from inauguration duty as federal authorities screen troops involved for security concerns. The troops include at least two with possible sympathies for anti-government groups. Ten were removed for reasons that defense officials declined to detail, but said did not involve extremism. Army General Daniel Hokanson, the chief of the National Guard, declined to provide specifics about the troops alleged to have expressed common cause with anti-government extremists, but said they made inappropriate comments. One was flagged because of concern within his unit, while another was reported anonymously. The other 10 guardsmen were identified by FBI investigators. Overall, these dozen troops represent a tiny fraction of the 25,000 guardsmen deployed in Washington today for the inauguration. An additional 2,000 active duty service members have rolled into Washington overnight. They're involved in ceremonial roles with the inauguration. Number three, President-elect Biden opened his inaugural commemorations last night by honoring the 400,000 of our fellow Americans who have died from the contagion. Returning to Washington for the first time since winning the election, Biden presided over the first event of national mourning amid the pandemic, and it set the tone for an inauguration that will be marked with more solemnity than jubilation. Lanterns surrounding the reflecting pool next to the Lincoln Memorial shone to represent the dead, and buildings across the nation lit in a united effort to honor those we've lost. As the sun set with vibrant tangerine hues over a largely desolate, security-conscious downtown, Biden explicitly called on Americans to remember the victims and implicitly signaled the swift changes he will try to bring to the presidency. Four years after Trump entered office, talking about American carnage and insisting I alone can fix it, Biden sought to project an optimism rooted in the possibilities of a country working together. In brief remarks, Biden said, between sundown and dusk, let us shine the lights in the darkness. To heal, we must remember. It's hard sometimes to remember but that's how we heal. It's important to do that as a nation. That's why we're here today. Earlier, a Michigan nurse had sang Amazing Grace, and after Biden spoke, a gospel singer sang Hallelujah. In a space that's usually crowded with people for a pre-inaugural concert, the dominant image instead was one of a void framed by light. The ceremony was a demarcation between Biden's presidency and Trump's tenure, Trump has almost entirely ignored the swiftly rising coronavirus caseloads and death toll for months, insisting during the campaign that the virus would just disappear soon. Biden's appearance at the reflecting pool came hours after he offered an emotional farewell to his home state, weeping openly several times as he spoke in front of a bank of Delaware flags before boarding a short flight to Washington. Speaking at an Air National Guard center named for his late son, Beau, who died of brain cancer in 2015, the president-elect said, quote, I know these are dark times, But there's always light. Finally, this is my last edition of the Daily 202 Big Idea podcast. The 202 debuted on June 10th, 2015. Six days later, Trump rode down that golden escalator to launch his presidential campaign and remake American politics. Since then, Trump's name has appeared in every single edition of my newsletter. This wasn't the original plan. To coincide with our launch, I actually interviewed a dozen candidates for the Republican nomination. When one of Trump's top advisors called me to say that he wanted to participate too, I respectfully declined, explaining that I was only showcasing people who had a realistic shot of winning the White House. The next day, I ran a Q&A with former Texas Governor Rick Perry. Oops. The rest is history, and we've lived it together. A reality television star became our first president with no prior governing or military experience. We launched this podcast in 2017, and thanks to listeners like you, it has succeeded beyond our wildest dreams. It feels fitting for my final big idea to run on this final day of the Trump presidency. Narrating the Trump era has been an eye-opening, if exhausting, labor of love. I woke up at 2 a.m. every single weekday for five and a half years. I've recorded about 900 editions of this audio briefing. Because I believe there's no substitute for shoe leather reporting, I have recorded this podcast from 41 states. If not for the pandemic, I might have reached 50 by now. Fortunately, this morning briefing will continue. My amazing colleagues will fill in as guest hosts, so definitely keep listening for some new voices in the same format you love. After a few weeks of contemplative time, I will begin writing a new column on the opinion page. If you don't subscribe to The Washington Post, it's another reason to take advantage of this week's special offer. A subscription gets you unlimited access to everything we publish from our political coverage to all of our op-eds, columns, and editorials. For a limited time, listeners can get two years of access for just $59. That's less than a dollar a week. Learn more and subscribe at WashingtonPost.com slash subscribe. That's WashingtonPost.com slash subscribe. Hopefully you have not heard the last from me. Keep your ears out for a new audio offering from me on the Opinions Team. We'll have more news on that soon, and we'll be sure to let you know in this space. Until then, I'm James Holman, and this was The Daily 202 for January 20th, 2021. Stay safe, and know how grateful I am to you for listening.